very special event for you, and perhaps a great learning voters and citizens look forward to another wonderful experience, an election campaign here in the United States. And uh, one of the questions uh, that we should be confronting is what are we doing in all these places overseas when we have here in Michigan and elsewhere in the United States so many challenges to face? Now we have, uh, I'm so delighted, uh, really someone who has a unique perspective, as you heard, a fantastic growing up experience. Uh, uh, Sarah, you must have had uh, world leaders and great thinkers uh, roaming around your living room and uh, your parents uh, kind of whispering to you and telling you, uh, uh, listen to this person, they really know what they're talking about. What was it like growing up in that environment of a powerful Washington couple? Well, we actually, I didn't grow up in Washington, I was born there, but we were, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a, in a university town, and um, there were some of those guys. We had Ken Galbraith was um, uh, a, a good friend, but um, I, I just remember wanting to be a grown-up, right? So I remember we would have <laughs> dinner, you know, dinner parties and someone would politely, I would, would get stuck sitting next to, you know, the 12-year-old, whatever, and would ask me what I had done in school and I would want to talk about the, the START treaty, right? <laughs> you know, and, of course. <laughs> and, but I really think, um, I think when you're growing up, you assume that everyone's life is like yours. And it's not just when you're growing up. I think it's when you're, I mean, people have asked me, what, what was it like arguing with the governor? And it's like, well, doesn't everyone argue with the governor? I mean, it, it, you know, you're living in your life and it's what's amazingly adaptable about the human, um, you know. But wait a minute, we, we just saw you uh, talking to one of these thugs who calls himself a governor who also might happen to be a drug dealer and a warlord and have his own private army. Uh, and uh, I didn't see you backing down in any of that documentary. Uh, wh what gives you uh, the self-worth, self the confidence to, to stand up to these people? That may be the upbringing. I mean, that really may be two parents who were brilliant, who were um, extremely engaged in public affairs. And it just never dawned on them that we wouldn't, you know, sort of do that. Now, the downside of that is that you feel guilty if you didn't become the president of the United States by the age of 30. <laughs> so, you know. Well, we'll give you a chance later in this discussion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, now, you, uh, you, you first wrote an incredible book called The Punishment of Virtue. Uh, which uh, inappropriately subtitled Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban. <laughs> like, so much for that prediction. <laughs> after the Taliban, yeah, there is a problem isn't right. there. Uh, um, and uh, there you, you traced uh, your steps uh, of, uh, I recall, um, sneaking across the Pakistani border uh, at, without uh, really caring very much about your own safety. Uh, landing in uh, this most dangerous place probably in the whole country, Kandahar. And uh, they wanted to put you in the uh, hotel slash guest house for all the journalists so they could keep you captured there. And uh, you immediately escaped that scene and moved in with an Afghan family at, at the edge of a graveyard. In, in a graveyard. In a graveyard, excuse me. Well, that would make your sleep more interesting anyway. Um, 
Now, uh, what did you think you would be able to accomplish? You were, for, at that stage, uh, initially a reporter, and you were telling us what was going on. And when you, when you were doing that, what were you seeing in terms of this transition from Taliban rule to another kind of rule? Well, the most important thing you saw, at the, and we're talking December 2001, the most important thing you saw was that Kandahari's, this was the heartland of the Taliban, this is where Osama bin Laden was, they were done with the Taliban. So I'm living in this family and, you know, it's a large family as Afghan families are. It was a mud brick house with running water but no electricity. No, electricity but no running water. Um, and I remember I was working on a piece for Morning Edition and, of course, there's no, as I said, electricity, there's no phone lines, there's no, you know, so um, I had a satellite dish, a portable satellite dish to um, file my stories. You can imagine you're in a mud brick house, but then I've got a computer and a satellite dish and, and the kids are looking at this stuff. And there have been no functioning schools in Kandahar, certainly not for girls, you know, for the last six years. And I'm working on this piece and the schools are about to open and the little girls in the family tumble. The other point is that Afghan houses have a receiving room because guests aren't allowed to see the women in the family. So there's a kind of front room and that became my room and that's where I slept. And the girls come tumbling into, through the sort of internal windows into the <laughs> room and we're talking little, you know, girls and it's, we're going to school, we're going to school, we're going to learn to write, we're going to learn to write. And they're, they're scribbling with their fingers on their hands because it was like magic what I was doing. They had been watching me all of those days. And I thought, morning edition can wait. I'm taking the girls to school. And I, with their mother, and I had one in one hand and one in the other hand, the other one's following them behind. And we walked down the street and it was tumultuous. I mean, there had to have been a thousand kids and their parents, you know, crowding, screaming, yelling, so excited to be going to school. And that was kind of the situation in, in December of 2001. And it's, troubling to think, you know, how it's deteriorated since then. Well, uh, that, is, that is troubling and it, uh, I mean, we saw in the film clip just now this, uh, what you uh, very, I think, uh, artistically called a vertically integrated <laughs> criminal, criminal organization personified uh, by the, the governor. First of all, let me check, how is the sound? Are we okay? Everyone can hear us okay? okay. All right. Uh, this vertically integrated criminal organization, uh, which, you, which is a thread that, that follows you into your later writing. So talk a little bit about that. What, how yeah, prevalent was that? I mean, I would say at that stage, it hadn't crystallized to the extent that I would have described it then using the terminology that, that you're quoting. But by 2008, 2009, that kind of local thuggery, so what he had done was declare a personal monopoly on a public resource, which was stone. And he was willing to let his own, you know, citizens, right? He's the governor of the province, and these are people whose houses got bombed um, and didn't have any place to live. And he was willing to have them go without houses so that he could monopolize stone and sell it to who? 
to us, to the Americans who were building a base, the military base, at the Kandahar airfield. And of course, military bases love nothing so much as they love gravel. And so, you know, he was grinding up the stone and either making cement or making gravel out of it and selling it, oh, by the way, for $100 a tractor load when the going rate was eight. And that's back in 2001. So you start imagining what what kind of revenues are being generated by this behavior. Um, at that stage, it was still a kind of localized, you know, he was just taking money however he could. By the next couple of years, this thing crystallizes. Um, and by vertically integrated, what I mean is a part of that take would be going up the line. So when somebody gets shaken down by a police officer, for example, on the side of the street for a dollar or half a dollar or something, petty corruption, right, um, which we have a tendency to dismiss as petty corruption, unimportant, uh, part of the way things get done over there and that's how you do business and things like that. Well, the police officer, first of all, he doesn't make a living wage. Now, in Afghanistan, we, the United States, you, we, taxpayers, were supporting the budget of the Afghan government. So there's no reason the police officer shouldn't have been paid enough. I mean, we could have made it a condition of our support for the Afghan government that civil servants and the military get paid enough to live on. But the reason they're not paid enough, it's not because the government doesn't have enough money, because we could have, I mean, we were providing the money for the government budget. It's in order to prime the pump of the vertically integrated bribery um, uh, kind of, um, it's like a straw sucking money up from the people on the, on, the, uh, on the street level because that police officer who shakes you down, he's paying a part of his take up to his precinct captain who's paying a part of it up to the district police chief and it goes on up to the, to the um, uh, interior minister. Um, and in return for the money going upwards, you have two things in Afghanistan were going downwards. One is absolute permission, absolute um, uh, free reign to extract resources anywhere, any way you want. So that guy, Gulag Ashirzai, he went on to be the governor of Jalalabad, which is also a border province, and he had his own customs booth. So basically, he was taking a personal customs tax from every truck that was crossing the border from Pakistan. Now, one of the, as you saw in the landscape, Afghanistan doesn't have a lot of resources. It's got some under the ground allegedly, but its most significant resource is where it sits. You've got three basins of civilization, the Iranian plateau, Central Asia, and the Indian subcontinent. And, and you've got a wall <laughs> that kind of divides those three up. And Afghanistan sits on two holes in that wall. So customs is a really important potential resource for that government. And um, uh, so you get free reign to, I mean, Afghan rubies and em emeralds, which you can traffic, timber and marble. And I mean, there's a lot of potential resources. And you get um, uh, protection 
from repercussions. And that's when I came to understand that this was a system, that it was a vertically integrated, and in fact, horizontally integrated, and we can talk about that either now or mm -hmm. later, you tell me. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I came to understand that much later when I was working for the commander of the international forces in Kabul, and we did start a kind of anti-corruption um, uh, policy, and there were a few arrests. And I watched like the interior minister throw himself across the railroad tracks to prevent the prosecution of a very unimportant local border police official from moving forward. And I'm like, why would he do that? Like, why would he risk his reputation? You know, here's a guy who's a darling of the international community. Why would he want, you know, to, to risk that? And that's when I realized, my God, it's, it's like a mafia bargain, that in return for the money that's going up, you get protection going back down. Now, you know, there's two really interesting examples. Uh, Governor Shirzai, who the British insisted that he get moved out of Kandahar because he was just too corrupt. And you'd think that would be the end of his career, quite the contrary. He went to an even more profitable governorship. Uh, and uh, they're you know, collecting all the tolls. And just the idea that uh, we seem to be on a different page completely from President Karzai, that uh, President Karzai is playing a completely different sheet, sheet of music. He's, he's uh, looking at his role as completely off from what we think his role should be. What, where is that gap coming uh, yeah, from? Yeah, and it's, it, and it's a gap that was certainly the case in Afghanistan, but I think it's also the case in a lot of other countries. We have, I mean, we might all, those of us who are in this room afterwards, get into a brawl outside about whether the government or the private sector is more or less um, a positive actor, right? That's one of the things Americans love to fight about. But fundamentally, we see governments and private sector actors, businessmen, as being licit actors, right? And the bad guys are over here. They're the terrorists and the criminals. And so it was really hard for us to think of President Karzai as a fundamentally negative actor because we saw him as the democratic, you know, the president of a democratically elected government, right? And, and the Europeans also, I found European officers when I was trying to train incoming non-US military officers, their governments had sold the, the Afghanistan um, mission to them as we're here to protect or to support the democratically elected government of Afghanistan against the nasty terrorists. So now we get into the issue of horizontally integrated criminal organizations where those four groups, the government, the private sector, in particular um, uh, logistics, uh, so shipping or trucking companies, private security companies, um, uh, banks. sorry, banks, yep, thank you very yep. much. Banks are really, are really critical members of these networks. And, um, you know, infrastructure, people who can build roads and build buildings and things like that. They are networked into uh, this kleptocratic network, often along with out-and-out -out criminals, drug dealers, you know, smugglers of, of, of people, of, you know, restricted wildlife in other countries. Um, and in the case of Afghanistan, there were Taliban in the Karzai network. And this was really hard for us to get our heads around. So we kept 
reinforcing to ourselves the idea of Afghan sovereignty as personified by President Karzai. Whereas my Afghan, you know, the folks I was living and working with were like, what sovereignty? Are you kidding me? You guys are already, you know, you guys run this place. So, um, and you guys brought these dogs back, you know, bring them to heal. And so there was a complete disconnect around this issue of sovereignty. Um, and there's a tendency, I find, that US officials have to um, also interact almost exclusively with their counterparts, meaning government officials in countries like Afghanistan. And therefore, the narrative that the government officials, who are often the members of the kleptocratic network, are, are spinning, um, uh, is very different from the narrative that you would get from the ordinary population. So th this really becomes an issue of prioritization. You can say, well, I know these people are corrupt, mm -hmm. but one of the quotes that you used uh, from a member of the uh, embassy was, uh, well, we deal with governments, and uh, it's the only game in town. It's, it's kind of that same message in many different forms from the military, from the the government officials, and I guess there's a third set of players, the contractors and, and assistance people, who really, the last thing they want to see is their project be completed. They want their projects to go on forever, right? Because that's where the money comes from. And you know, you, you'd be a terrible failure if you actually completed building the ring road in Afghanistan or any other road in the developing world. Uh, that's just not the name of the game. So we've really got a, a circle of corruption that uh, you, you took in, in this book, in Thieves of State, and you, you took it beyond Afghanistan to a lot of other places, places you had served and or been in. Yeah, I mean, once I started crystallizing this model, if you will, I hate to use that word, but uh, I had been by that time in Afghanistan for eight years and that I had been living and breathing and eating and you know um, most of the cells in my body were Afghan at that point given the speed with which we we regenerate them and through a um, uh, our anti-corruption project we, we had some minimal requirements were, which were like you don't invite the most corrupt officials for fancy overseas events and so we find out there's a counter-narcotics conference happening in Garmisch, Germany and who do they invite to represent Afghanistan but the um, counter-narcotics minister sounds perfectly logical. Only problem was he was the biggest drug dealer in the Afghan north, right? So I actually had a friend at this outfit and called her up and said turn this guy off and then she was out a speaker on Afghanistan. So, sorry, long-winded, I'm fading back for the past here a little bit. But I go up there and I give a counter-narcotics talk and then at the end I could not resist just saying, look, it's drugs are just a revenue stream. That's not the story. The story is the criminal organization that's masquerading as a government. And I just, you know, put that in as a throwaway and I'll be darned if people, I mean, it electrified the group, which was about as many as you are, and they were from 45 different countries. And um, they came down and told me, you just described my country. And I start looking at who they are, and it's Nigeria, and it's some of the stands. This is in late 2009. And there is a violent religious extremism or insurgency happening in every country that the, whose representative came down to say that I had just described his country. 
or her country. And that's when I realized, wow, this isn't just an Afghanistan story. So the book includes um, forays into Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Uzbekistan, and Nigeria. Um, and uh, I didn't write the book until after the Arab Spring. This, this talk had been before the Arab Spring, but then you have the Arab Spring, which is six countries or seven or eight countries go into revolution and six change their um, leadership. Uh, I mean, it really was, I mean, that was the most dramatic international security event probably since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, we, we maybe had high hopes and uh, expectations of the Arab Spring and uh, what it might bring for the Arab and Muslim world, but uh, things didn't quite play out as planned. In Tunisia, uh, maybe they, they got to where they wanted to be, except the, the, the kleptocrats at the top never really went away, did they? So, I, I, the one thing I would say is let's just take a knee and remember, I'm from the Boston area. Uh, the American Revolution started up there in 1775, and if I remember correctly, we got a government that, you know, could more or less stay on the road um, in 1788. Is that about yeah. right? So that's somebody count for me, right? That's about 13, 14 years. Let's not expand and and. We were, at that time, the people who mattered were white Protestant males. Now let's think about Egypt today. Uh, let's give them some time. Um, if you think about France or England and how long it took them to get from their first real sort of anti authoritarian revolution to a functioning government, it was in the case of England about 40 years, in the case of France about 100. So, so I, don't, I don't call the Arab Spring a failure yet. Uh, but I would agree with your caveat on Tunisia. Tunisia is less violent for the moment than Egypt is, but these were anti-corruption revolutions. I mean, at that time, I was working for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I had come back from Afghanistan through Paris in January of 2011, and I was, I mean, the French were much more attuned to what's happening in Tunisia than we were, right? And I come back to the Pentagon, and I'm like, Tunisia, can you believe it? You know, I mean, can you believe what's happening in Tunisia? And for the first couple of days, people are really trying to find Tunisia on a map. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so at that point, I say, boss, let me go out there. I used to live in North Africa. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco, and I speak North African Arabic. And um, what I did for the chairman for, in Afghanistan was provide him a kind of ground truth that he wasn't getting from his own hierarchy. So I said, I can do for you in North Africa what I do for you in Afghanistan. So that was pretty interesting. I went all the way across the continent in the early spring of 2011. Um, and those were anti-corruption revolutions. You had people in the streets with um, posters, with ministers, pictures of ministers behind bars. It was about justice. I mean, the degree to which the 1989 revolutions might have been termed liberty revolutions, these ones were justice revolutions. Um, but here we are in Tunisia, um, 
in both Tunisia and Egypt, you have elections won by the most organized force in the country after the kind of dictatorships were pushed aside, and that was the religious party. And in both cases, the religious party really overplayed its hand and was quite authoritarian itself and was kind of rewriting the constitution to the benefit of its party. Um, and in both cases, there was a reaction against that. In the case of Egypt, it was bloody. It was a coup followed by a massacre in the streets of Cairo. In Tunisia, it wasn't. And the Nobel, the recent Nobel given to the quartet is brilliant in my view. I actually went back to Tunisia in early uh, 2014 to study the work of the quartet because I had never heard of a damn quartet, you know, and I find out that you've got a labor union. I mean, it was an absolute old-fashioned labor union. A fifth of the population of Tunisia, belong sorry, uh, not a fifth, yeah, 5%, sorry, 5% of the population of Tunisia belongs to that labor union. But it was the labor union, it was the, it was the managers, the owners of business owners got together for the first time since independence along with the bar association and a human rights organization and they worked there they worked incredibly hard to we know what she was going to say <laughs> you got it all nighters right I mean, neophyte politicians who have either been in exile or have been in jail don't know how to, don't know how to negotiate. So you had the trade union was like, you shut up and let him talk and then, you know, then it's your turn and stuff like that. So that was a great Nobel Prize. But as you suggested, I'm not sure Tunisia is out of the woods because it, it looks like a peaceful version of Egypt, which actually looks a lot like England in, you know, 16, whatever it would have been, about the 1670s, it's a restoration. It's a restoration, and England went through it, and France went through it, so I don't think it's the end of the story. But what you have in Tunisia is a more democratic process that has arrived at the same result, which is the same economic networks, elites, are still running the country and the people who started the revolution, none of those social justice or anti-corruption issues have been addressed. Um, and so I don't think it's an accident that uh, Tunisia is sending more people to ISIS in Syria than any other uh, Middle Eastern country. Now you just got a glimpse of uh, Sarah Chase, the historian, and Sarah Chase, the author writing about corruption, because uh, this is a very, very interesting aspect of this book, and one that I think was pretty brave uh, to do, uh, to take uh, some uh, information from the Middle Ages and uh, examples uh, from that far back in history and say, look, these things matter, these things still matter. Uh, you wrote at one point about uh, an admonition to the, to the ruler, to the king, uh, that if you look too wealthy, if you look too comfortable, the people will rise up against you. And I guess we started to see something like that in the Middle East. But yeah, you know. it's deeper than that. And actually, so there's a chapter in this book um, 
uh, about a body of literature that's called Mirrors for Princes. And the one that we're all most familiar with is Machiavelli, the prince, right? What's really interesting is if you read him carefully, you see that he knows that he's part of a whole tradition of these, they're essentially handbooks for how to be a good ruler. And he deliberately, the, the prince is written deliberate in a deliberately provocative uh, style what he does is he takes the lists of virtues that all of these you know mirrors for princes before before his admonish the king that he has to be generous and he has to be you know merciful and he has to be all these great things and Machiavelli says well actually if you're too generous you're going to deplete your treasury and actually so in a kind of provocative way he knocks down all of these virtues it's a stylistic thing um, but there's one vice that he says don't commit this one or you'll lose your kingdom and it's corruption it's corruption. And so that chapter goes through mirrors for princes in both Islam and the West. And all of them say, all of them make clear that corruption and distancing yourself from the ruled and um, uh, basically stealing, to use Machiavelli's terms, stealing your um, subjects' property or their women is the best way to lose your kingdom. And that's really why I included that, um, that uh, whole chapter is because the notion that being corrupt would lead to a security crisis is one that um, courtiers and advisors to rulers have known for centuries and we seem to have forgotten it. So we are now in the midst of uh, what the military-industrial congressional complex might call the perfect war. Uh, that is a war that will never end, <laughs> the war on terror. And uh, if, we, if I go back to Egypt as the example, uh, we, after the overthrow of the interim uh, Islamist government, we, uh, we blessed on the rise of General al-Sisi as the new leader of Egypt, and there was an election, and of course he won a huge majority. Uh, and we immediately step in and start military aid. Uh, and you had uh, discussions in Afghanistan and uh, in later in this book that uh, we, we, again, lock in on whoever's in charge and we ignore corruption as something down here, that we will get to that someday in the future but that it's more important that we get stability or security. Uh, now, you were on the inside of the tent for a while in, uh, in Afghanistan, where I met you at the Yellow Building, and, uh, uh, in, and then later at the top of the, of, of the pyramid at, with uh, Admiral Mullen. And uh, so you're kind of, uh, you, you're a co-conspirator in this problem, in a way. What can we, you do about it from the inside? Or you tried to do it from the outside, you gave great lectures, and, and then yeah. what can you do from the inside? Can I back up a second yeah. just to try to make, because this has been great fun, but I don't think I've quite been able to make the case as clearly as I'd like to. So do, can I do that? Yeah? Um, uh, let me just try to run you guys through the thinking process. How do I get from corruption to militant puritanical religion, right? And, and here's sort of how it goes. First of all, let me just 
talk about what do I mean by corruption? I mean, there's been corruption, obviously, since there's been government, but I do actually think we're in a different period, and we have been since the early 1990s, I would say, at least. And um, there are three elements that I think are important to understand about it. One is the amount of money we're talking about. So in a place like Afghanistan, you saw what it looks like. The quote petty bribery that I was talking about, according to two different surveys, it's between two and five billion dollars a year is extorted and shaken down from, or from the people who look like the people that, that you saw in that film strip. Now, Afghanistan takes in slightly over one billion dollars in illicit revenue. So you're talking, you know, at least twice, if not, you know, about four or five times the revenue base of the country. Um, I was talking, there's a kleptocracy unit in the U.S. Department of Just Justice which goes after big, high-level, foreign, corrupt officials. For a long time they had one, count them, FBI investigator. And I had coffee with her a couple of weeks ago and she was like, God, it's changing. Even in her, you know, professional experience, it's accelerating. She said, for years I had one billion dollar case. I now have five open billion dollar investigations. Last example, um, uh, it, well, I, I wanted to ask you something else because the, the, the types of security crises, we've been talking Afghanistan, which is insurgency. We talked about the Arab Spring. Um, Ukraine is another one that I would sort of mention. Kunduz for Afghanistan is, um, I mean, I started seeing corruption in the governor of Kunduz in 2009. Boko Haram, how many of you remember, and it's a little hard to see you because of the lights, but how many of you remember the story of the girls that got kidnapped? Um, yeah. So let me give you another uh, Nigeria story. Um, the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria was noticing in 2013 that, which was, if you can remember back that far, when oil was still pretty high, and he was comparing the revenues from last time oil was that high, and they weren't, it wasn't adding up. So he started doing the numbers, and he discovered a $20 billion shortfall in the revenues that the National Oil Company was, I mean, the oil that it was selling and the revenues that it was remitting to the state. So he submits a memo to the, um, to the president, to the Senate. And then he calls in the bankers. <laughs> he says, I'm going to start looking at your books because that money went someplace, at which point they go to the president, president fires him. How many of you remember that story? One? Okay. So that's interesting because when the girls were kidnapped, um, the president and the secretary of state were quite vocal about how the U.S. was going to do anything President Jonathan wanted um, to help get the girls back. That The girls were kidnapped four months after Sanusi was fired as governor of the central bank. And we never said, I mean, what would $20 billion do for Nigeria, right? How many Nigerians died for lack of those $20 billion, be it, for healthcare or for infrastructure or for whatever. And yet the support that we offered to the government of Nigeria was never conditioned on, oh, and by the way, stop stealing $20 billion incidentally over a 19 month period. So a lot of money, sorry, I don't wanna 
take up too much time, but a lot of money is one point. The second point is structure, and we talked about this a little bit, with the vertically integrated, horizontally integrated, including you know, governments, private sector actors, um, insurgents sometimes, and certainly criminals. But what these governments do is they repurpose elements of state function to serve their objective, which is to enrich themselves. So rather than seeing it so often when we talk about corruption, we'll say some metaphor like cancer, right? So what you imagine in your mind is a body, as a government that's somehow being eaten away by, by cancer or being corroded somehow by corruption. What I want to suggest, and it's provocative language, is we're not looking at governments that are failing so much as we're looking at criminal organizations that are succeeding, but that are masquerading as governments. And, and so they're, they're bending state function, and that means, for example, the judiciary, so that you can provide the impunity that I talked about earlier. But also Tunisia, very bureaucratic country, the tax authority, now again, um, I'm sure we could all make some jokes about the role of the tax authority in, in governments, right? But in Tunisia, it was really clear. Jack wants to build a hotel on the Mediterranean coast. He doesn't have to pay taxes so long as he gives me a piece of his action. And the day he doesn't is the day he gets audited to an inch of his life. Uh, and so you see specific elements of the bureaucracy being used by this network to further its objective. And they're succeeding in their objective, which is enriching themselves. They're doing a really good job of it. And the last element that's, I don't think, new, but it's really important for us to understand as, as Americans. I'm a resident of the District of Columbia, so I'm not unfamiliar with corruption. Uh, but that's both local and national. That's precisely, class, yeah. precisely. But you know, you live it. When we experience it, it tends to be sort of indirect. It's that the bridge didn't get finished fast enough, or the tarmac isn't as good quality as it might have been. When a cop in Afghanistan or that governor shakes you down for money, he doesn't do it politely. And this is something we really have to bear in mind. I mean, I start Thieves of State with an anecdote about one of my cooperative members, and we didn't mention that apart from um, whatever else I did, I, I, I made soap. And so <laughs> I don't know if you saw it coming in, but so it was one of the guys, Nurullah, who helped. I mean, he's a member of the Argonne Cooperative, and his brother got shaken down by cops enough time on his way back from Pakistan that he had had it, and he said no. I'm done paying you people. And he got smacked in the face. I thought we were going to have to bail him out of jail. In Nigeria, I was talking to some lawyers about how corruption functions in the, in the judiciary, the judicial branch. And one of them stops me as we get into the mechanics, and he stops me and says, Sarah, you've been talking about money. It's not just money. And he tells me the story about a woman whose husband was in pretrial detention and he's a diabetic and he needs his medicine. And she said, please let him out on bail. I guarantee you he will show up for trial. The judge takes advantage of her. It's now being called sextortion. And I should have thought of it, right? So, so as a female, that bothered me. As a security professional, I started thinking about her brother. 
So what does Nurullah, my cooperative member, and what does the brother of that woman want to do when they're faced with this kind of abuse? They want to kill the guy. Well, in southern Afghanistan and in northern Nigeria, you've got an insurgent movement that wants nothing more than for these guys to kill the cop or kill the judge. They're right there, and they've got a gun. And not only do they have a gun, they have an argument. And this is where I get really to the connection and to some of the history. Um, the argument goes, the reason this cop or this judge is so corrupt, and, and think of the breadth of the meaning of that word, it's not just misuse of public office, it's also depravity, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's immoral behavior. The reason they're so corrupt is because they, they don't obey God. And if only our government were organized according to God's law, they couldn't possibly behave that way. Um, now, y'all have to just look at Iran, <laughs> you know, to see that's, that's how the current government of Iran came to power, a very similar argument, um, and they are not uncorrupt. But when you're a furious young man in northern Nigeria, you're not doing comparative political analysis, you know? It's a very persuasive argument. And, and so there's another historical riff in Thieves of State that, um, um, that touches on this because uh, it's not just Islam and it's not just the 20th century. Um, John Locke, who's read him? All your literary folks? Nobody? Okay, all right, all right, all right. We've Phew. heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you know who the guy is, right? Our Constitution is basically built on his thinking and his writing. And oh, by the way, he was a Puritan. And he wrote, when there is a barefaced resting of the law to indemnify, as I think the word he uses, to suit a man or a party of men, war is made on the sufferers. It's pretty strong language. Who, lacking an appeal on earth to right them, will turn to the only remedy in such cases, an appeal to heaven. And I'm like, wow, the guy is predicting violent religious extremism as a reaction to this kind of a situation. Um, the guy's a Puritan, the historical riff goes from, I mean, it includes the American Constitution. I mean, the, the American Constitution was creating a, an appeal on earth. That's what it's about. It's an anti-corruption, um, it, it's, a, it's a basically an anti-corruption device or a corruption prevention device, if you will. Um, English Civil War, John Locke was just shortly afterwards. Dutch Revolt, I had never heard of the Dutch Revolt till I started doing this, this research. And I realized, wow, they're all Protestants. So I better, what are the Protestants, you know, I better figure out what it is with the Protestants. So I, I read the 95 Theses. It's all about corruption. I mean, it's simony, it's indulgences, it's, it's, it's you know, prelates who have multiple prebends, so they get the revenue from multiple prebends. There are diagrams um, in the back of this book that started out with two that I had done on Afghanistan. Yeah, you got them. Um, there is enough material in the 95 Theses and some other petitions that were sent into Rome in the early 16th century in the same time period for me to draw a diagram of how the Catholic Church in the early 16th century was functioning as a vertically integrated criminal organization. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> now, now I, I, have to, I have to 
to say something to our aspiring writers and would-be writers and actual writers, and also to many students who we have in the audience, that it, it, not only is it gutsy to talk about John Locke in a book about current-day corruption, but to put what are effectively PowerPoint slides in the appendix. <laughs> uh, it's unprecedented almost. So let me just wrap this up, and All then right. I know I've taken us a little bit down a garden path, but I just wanted to be able to make the argument rather than sort of refer to it. But um, just final dip into history, the Protestant Reformation was not a peaceful movement. It was incredibly violent. Um, and in fact, they went after buildings. I, I, I don't want to draw the parallel too exactly, but iconoclasm, I mean, they went after buildings and they didn't just knock the noses off of statues, they went after everything that represented the wealth that they saw as having been unjustly extorted from ordinary people. Um, and so I just wanna finish up with the parallel and say I'm gonna repeat the John Locke, when there is a barefaced resting of the laws to indemnify a, par a man or a party of men War is made on the sufferers, who lacking an appeal on earth to right them, will turn to the only remedy in such cases, an appeal to heaven. Now let me just read you, if I can find it quickly, a uh, quote from another guy who says, you know, people in this fix, I'm paraphrasing obviously, will appeal for an alternative, now I'm quoting, an alternative upright methodology in which it's not the business of any class of humanity, any party of men, to lay down its own laws to its own advantage at the expense of the other classes. And that infallible methodology is the methodology of God Most High. Guess who said that one? Osama bin Laden. Now this is really scary. This linkage between violent extremism and corruption which you beautifully crafted in this book. Uh, this, this is pretty discouraging if you're sitting uh, back at the Pentagon or at the State Department, you're saying, what are we gonna do about all this extremism uh, and this never-ending war with, uh, against terrorism? Uh, we, can't, we can't argue this on religious grounds. Right. So what, can, what is the grounds we can argue it on? Well, it's an interesting question because we try to argue it on religious grounds. We just had a summit in Washington about countering violent extremism, and it was all focused on religious ideology. N almost none of it was focused on this stuff. So the last, most of the book is not a policy wonk book, but there is one policy wonk chapter, and that's a kind of remedies chapter. And I don't try to say, here's what we need to do across the board, because if nothing else, this is a book that says every country has its own context and its own... Uh, historical conditions, and also political trade-offs. I mean, I'm not completely a crusader. I do recognize that there are political trade-offs to be taken into consideration. And also, um, there are windows of opportunity. I mean, every country is on its own calendar, and so you have to think about, you know, when's the right moment to do something. But there's an extraordinary variety of things to be done, but let's start with the old Hippocratic Oath, right? What's different about this issue from a recent 
the more recent American past, which is autocracy, when we did a kind of similar thing where the US government was often supporting dictators as against the enemy of the day, which was communism. And it was quite similar. People were being driven into the arms of communism because of the poor behavior of the dictators under, under whom they lived. Um, and so our support for dictators often was counterproductive. But the difference was, I mean, there was, there was some direct support for, for dictators, but quite often it was a question of looking the other way. In the case of corruption, we are actively um, facilitating and enabling it um, in a really significant way, and we're making a lot of money off of it. So um, when you do a network diagram of these kleptocratic networks, it's kind of interesting to see who are the banks that they're using, who are the lawyers that they're using, where are they buying their real estate? And it's very often in New York or London. And when you have the now former mayor of New York saying, I want every billionaire in the world to buy, buy property in New York, I'm saying, is every billionaire's money clean? <laughs> you know, are we literally saying that we want to float the US economy on dirty money? Um, and, and, and so I think the first thing to do is start at home, right? Let's do less harm. Um, and that means Delaware, which is one of those havens for, um, you know, companies that you can't see into. Corporate, uh, yeah. hiding a corporation. In Correct. Yeah. Um, and then there's a lot to be done in terms of, um, uh, like I said about why I ended up in Garmisch, the U.S. government invited Dilma Rousseff of um, Brazil to Washington in late June and rolled out the red carpet for her. Now, she's involved in another one of these billion-dollar scandals. It's another oil scandal. And there were a million Brazilians in the street protesting the corruption of the Rousseff government. I'm not saying we shouldn't maintain diplomatic relations with her, but let's at least not enable her by raising her stature with a red carpet visit to Washington. Um, and then there are things like visa denials. There's the type of action that was taken against FIFA, the uh, International Soccer Federation, FIFA, that um, involved money laundering laws, it involved RICO, statute, I mean, all of that, any assets that can be linked to a crime that are held in US dollars, the United States government can freeze. So those are some of the things to be done. But if you look at the remedies chapter, you'll see that there's quite a diverse um, uh, kind of array of them that can be undertaken by different actors, including us. So I have a I've lived in France for a long time since before I moved to Afghanistan. I've got my money in HSBC. And I'm going to take my, I, I should have done it already, but I'm taking my money out of HSBC because they have been laundering both drug dealers, terrorists, and kleptocratic officials money for years. We can, the same way that we might decide not to buy a dress made in a sweatshop in Bangladesh where people are locked into the factory, we can choose to, it's kind of social, what's the word, uh, social sanction? Yep. It's not quite the word, there's a, sorry. Um, but, but we've got a role to play. We can choose. Um, we can stigmatize these people. That's exactly right, yeah. thank you. Yeah, and yeah. she bought her dress here in Traverse City. <laughs> <laughs> Made in Traverse City. Yeah. <laughs>
Sarah, I know uh, you enjoy getting questions from the audience, and I'm sure they're dying to offer some of their questions right now. So let me just ask you, my last question, to, to say something to the about 100 students that we have here from Interlochen Arts Academy, our great high schools here in Traverse City, and from Northwestern Michigan College. First of all, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here at a literary festival and among writers. I realized it was really only sort of stepping up here that I realized, uh, I mean, I've written a couple of books, but, but you know when you, when you come back from overseas and you have to write your occupation on the little piece of paper, and I'm like, God, what do I do? <laughs> well, what's my occupation? And I've never felt that, that I had the right to call myself a writer. I've written a couple of books, but does that make me a writer? And I've never enjoyed the company of writers. Um, and so the first thing I would say is... They don't is, enjoy company at all. That's normal. <laughs> do that. You know, uh, enjoy each other's company and read each other's work and think about it carefully and support each other, you know, and support critically each other's effort. But I think the other thing that I would say that, that I can speak to from experience has to do with the the raggedy CV. Um, so it sounded great. Um, uh, the holes in my CV sort of got glossed over. Um, and I think that particularly students in this day and age are being obliged to have such a clear trajectory where every step seems to build from the step before and God forbid you trip or God forbid you go off, you know, on a side trail that might be a dead end or might not be, it might, you know, be a scenic route um, that you actually learn a lot from. There's not, you don't feel like you have room to do this. And the first time I took a leap, and I've done this a couple of times. Um, I don't have any parachute training, and I've taken a couple of leaps off a couple of cliffs. And the first time I did it was, I was about 29. And I literally thought, man, there's no room in this society to have an adolescent crisis when you're 29 years old. And I thought it was the <laughs> end of my life. I really did. And all I can say is, there's real value in the crooked path and the raggedy CV. And it gives life the opportunity to have a vote. If you plan it out too well, then you're not open to the time when President Karzai's uncle, as you're walking out the door, says, wouldn't you come back and help us? And you say yes, without even registering what the question was. You know, and then your life takes this 10-year you know, detour into Afghanistan, which I wouldn't give up for anything. So I think that is the... It's not quite about writing, it's more about living. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So if we could have the lights up. That's much better. I love seeing, <laughs> seeing you. And we have microphones, and if you would, uh, when you get and the microphone, stand and give us your, at least your first name, if you can, stand. And uh, I'd also love to encourage questions about writing, because I never get those. And here I am in a community of writers, so don't be shy with those either. Over here, from Interlochen Arts Academy. Yeah, hello, uh, D David Allen from Interlochen Arts Academy. I, I think maybe the term that you were looking for earlier was socially conscious investing. 
No, no, no. It's so. It's a social. It's a negative. It's social. Um, it's not sanctioned, but it's something like that. But okay. anyway, that's a great. Okay. Also, a great issue is socially okay. conscious investing. Th thank you. Um, you used the word impolite a, a while ago, and speaking of impolite, uh, I remember uh, the, the Taliban comes to mind, and about 13 years ago, at the Kennedy School. I asked a visiting fellow there who was from Afghanistan to tell me something about Afghanistan that most Americans didn't know. And he said, well, whatever government perpetuates itself there, the Taliban will be part of it. And this is 13 years later, and they're still kind of in the news. So what I was wondering is, do you think that's something that folks inside the Beltway are in denial about or simply don't know? Uh, neither. Um, actually, there's been a very strong push since about 2008, 2009, to negotiate with the Taliban. And huge US efforts were expended uh, to try to start the, get these negotiations started. I have to say I was against that. And I was against it for the following reason. Um, the two most repudiated actors in Afghanistan were the Karzai government and the Taliban. So it didn't make any sense to me why you would put those two on opposite sides of a table and split up the pie between them. It might be that Taliban might be part of a government, but the real question is why were people driven back into the arms of the Taliban? What, it, it, and that's what I've been trying to talk about tonight. It's because the Karzai government was so terrible that even those, that community that was so delighted to be rid of the Taliban and was sending their little girls to school in this joyous, raucous morning that I'll never forget, three, four, five years later, they hated the Taliban, but they were so disgusted and indignant at the way the Karzai government was treating them that they drifted back toward the Taliban. Or the Taliban seemed to be no worse, and they certainly weren't going to take a risk um, uh, to prevent the Taliban from coming back on behalf of a government that was treating them this badly. So my argument was we shouldn't have a two-way negotiation between the Karzai government and the Taliban. We should have a multi-stakeholder conversation where maybe some Taliban would be at the table, but it wouldn't be a two-sided table, it would be a round one. Because why should it be that the people who took up arms against that terrible government are being rewarded with a seat at the table in negotiations and the people who hated that government just as much but stayed peaceful are left outside? I, I didn't understand that. So my, I, I think it's another issue that's sort of raised by the analysis in this book is peace negotiations, which I think a lot of people are in favor of in principle, and I certainly am, but when they too often devolve into what I would call elite bargains. And what you've actually got is you're splitting up the resources between two competing kleptocratic networks, and the population is left out in the street. And so that's kind of what the Balkans looks like today. So. Fortunately, people aren't killing themselves, or each other, sorry, at the rate that they were in the 1990s in the Balkans, but that place is not, it, it, it's not stable, it's not um, 
uh, a conducive place to live, and I don't think it's going to stay peaceful very long. A microphone. Right, a gentleman in blue, right in the middle. That's a great color, by the way. Hi, thank you. Uh, Afghanistan is a premier narco state, and it has been for years. And I'm wondering why we enabled them when we had the power to shut down their poppy business. Why did we let it function? Why is is that? To what extent is that corruption? There's With a lot of corruption. So so um, I lived in Kandahar, which is surrounded by poppies. And for example, the soap there, we make our own essential oils. And in the spring, we needed to cut wildflowers. We would hire people to cut wildflowers, which we would distill to make essential oils, except that there was a period where we couldn't get any labor because everyone was going to the poppy field. So I know something about the opium economy. First of all, I would say it hasn't been a narco state forever. It's been a narco state from, I would say, the sort of latter half of the Soviet invasion. In fact, it's a fruit-growing region, and that's what the Argonne Cooperative is about, is adding value to fruit products, because it's pomegranates, and it's five different kinds of apricots, and it's uh, grapes, and it's, it's unbelievable, the fruit they produce. And the Taliban actually were able to end um, the poppy trade at least for the last year of their reign. They, they, but, but they were an incredibly autocratic government. And in fact, they were doing it so that the price of opium would go up because they had a lot in stock. So that was a little bit corrupt too. But yes, I mean, one of the major members or one of the people making a lot of money out of the opium industry was President Karzai's younger half-brother, Ahmed Wali Karzai. Well, this guy was, I mean, there's a U.S. organization that was problematic in this regard, and it's called the CIA, because the CIA um, believes in the, he's a son of a but he's our son of a um, uh, philosophy, and Ahmed Wali Karzai was their main guy in Kandahar, and they just put themselves in the way of any effort to address not only the guy's involvement in the opium industry, but also his complete stranglehold on the entire province, uh, much of the South, actually. But the issue with opium is a little bit complicated because farmers lived on it. And they lived on it not because it was such an incredibly lucrative crop for them, but because there had been, it, it was structural. There had been a drought for five or six years, killed a lot of fruit trees, and there, is no, there was no financial system. There was no access to credit. If you are a, an Afghan couple and your son is getting married, it's gonna cost you about $10,000. Again, remember what the landscape looked like back there. $10,000 is a gigantic amount of money for an Afghan family because they have to basically pay a bride price, they have to build an extra room into their house, and they have to throw a party that everyone who knows anyone who knows them is gonna come to, right? So, and there's no one, they, you can't go to the bank and take out a loan, and you've tapped, it's been six years of drought, you can't, your uncle doesn't have any more ready cash to borrow, so who do you borrow money from the opium dealer? And you have to pay it back in opium. 
Um, and if you, if the US goes in and eradicates your opium field, the, your creditor doesn't say, oh, okay, you don't owe me the money anymore. You don't owe, you have to, you owe him twice as much next year. So eradication sometimes has the impact of actually doubling the amount of land that's gonna get planted next year. So there were a lot of reasons why, um, why narcotics did not get um, um, reduced. Um, but one of those reasons is certainly that we didn't, we cared about bad guys and we didn't really care about how the country was being run. In the back, I think. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> at the expense of being patronizing, uh, one of the most insightful, thought-provoking presentations I think I've heard in a long, long time. But, uh, and I commend you on that. Uh, but it's hard to feel, uh, what's the word I'm, uh, I'm overwhelmed by the complexity of the world we're living in right now. How do we, how do we light that one candle that starts the fire that? Okay, so. <laughs> Now we're going to have we're going to have a female president. We know that, right? The, either party you're in favor of, we're going to have two women running for president, and now we've got a third. So go for it. <laughs> the answer is, I think now, uh, and, and and at the risk of preaching, so please bear with me a little bit. Um, it's about starting at home. And one of the things that I, so I'm gonna fade back for the past a little bit. As I went to all of these other corrupt countries, having been down the Afghanistan rabbit hole for you know a decade, and then I kind of look around and it's, oh my God, it's Tunisia and Egypt and, and Morocco and Algeria and Libya and Yemen and you know, and then it's Ukraine and, the, and, and it's Nigeria and it's, um, and I ask people, you know, corruption's always been around. What's new? Like, why is everyone upset about it now? When, you know, was there, is there a time that it really went off the rails? And the answer was always a specific year. And that specific year for, f was almost always in the mid-1990s. But give or take. And so that's gotten me really thinking hard about what's happened in our world uh, since the you know, let's say since the 1980s. And I think it has to do with money. Hmm. And this is also gonna be like, you know, I mean, old as the hills, right? But I actually think we're in a period where we have been exalting money. Money has come to, um, we're equating money with virtue in a way that hasn't been the case in prior decades. And I think you know, it ebbs and flows. There have been other periods in American history that have looked like this, but we're in one right now. And I think it is actually collapsing our culture. I think, and that's also why I'm just thrilled to be in, a, um, in, in what's in part a cultural festival, right? Because we are in cultural crisis and what a culture does for a society is it helps us, um, it, 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 it shows us the ideals that we should aspire to. How, how should I be a good American? 
What does it mean to be a good American? What must I strive for? What's worth taking a risk over? We start to say, be safe as a salutation, right? Bye, be safe. And I say, is that really what I should be aspiring to, to be safe? I'd rather aspire to, to take a risk on behalf of an ideal. But I think we're in a place where we are paying lip service to certain ideals, but we're rewarding something else. And that has gotten us really confused. And so back to your question, it's not the world that's so confusing. It's we have gotten confused and we don't remember, we, we're losing our path in terms of what is right and what is wrong. And that takes us back to issues of crime and punishment. I mean, this book, Thieves of State, it's about criminality. We've got some criminality here in the United States that we are not paying attention to. And I don't want to sound too much like an Old Testament kind of guy, but, um, and an eye for an eye and stuff like that. But I do think there is value in punishing crimes, not just because the individual who did wrong, you know, has wrong done to him or her, but because that's a way for a society to keep redrawing the lines between what's right and what's not so right. And we're losing track of that in America. And if we don't know what's right and what's wrong, it's really hard for us to function coherently overseas. So I hate to boil it down to something that sounds that simplistic, but um, uh, that I think is part of why the world is seeming so confusing because it's confused, just like we are. So one of the most interesting two weeks of my life, I just spent in Nigeria in November, asking community elders, be they Muslim, be they Christian, be they worshipers of a deity of the sea and rivers called Olokon, whether the meaning of money has changed in their lifetime. And boy, did I get emphatic and interesting answers. And those answers were about, you know, it used to be that money was something that you used to get something that you needed. But now money is something that people use to intimidate other people. And I said, wow, wh wh what do you mean by intimidate? Well, you intimidate people by giving them money. What do you mean by that? Well, if somebody gives me money, then I can't tell the truth about them anymore. Wow, that's interesting. I got answers like that. And then I got um, stories of people who remembered finding, as a child, finding money on the ground, and they would take it home and get beaten because they couldn't explain where that money came from. And then people said, but now nobody cares where your money came from. They exalt you if you have it. And I think about the Forbes magazine article about the richest woman in Africa. Well, the richest woman in Africa is the daughter of the president of Angola. And believe me, or she didn't make that money working. 
Um, Sarah, we had on this stage, uh, I think Doug Stanton interviewed him, George Packard, and about the unwinding and, and talking about very similar themes to that. Um, I think that's very interesting. And just a few weeks ago, I went down with my mother to a memorial service in a little tiny town outside of Lansing, Michigan, and was surprised to hear a successful business person talk about, well, there'll have to be a revolution in America. and and. You know, I was like, really? I mean, you know, that uh, there seems to be too much buy-in to middle class and too much people, you know, trying to grab that gold ring to, to rise up. But, but do you think that uh, people can be so unhappy in this country? And of course, the unhappiness comes from so many different places that you could imagine some sort of a violent uprising in this country. It's a really good question. Um, I would say that unhappiness and, and indignation drives people to extremes. And sometimes those extremes are mass movements like the revolutions we saw in the Arab world or in Ukraine and, and that potentially could, we could go that way. Um, and sometimes they're very asymmetric extremes like joining very splinter um, extremist movements. Um, and you're seeing this in Europe, where you see, you know, extremist neo-Nazi parties are gathering more and more uh, supporters. So I'm not sure what form it might take, but I do also think we're a little bit comfortable in this country. And we're also getting very distracted by our little handhelds. I mean, uh, uh, I, I don't know whether the comfort that we're used to is not effectively distracting us from some of these very significant issues. And let me just to bring in another big one to further, further confuse the issue, we're hurtling toward um, a very unsustainable uh, relationship with our home, which is the planet. Um, and corruption plays an important role in this too, where uh, land rights and um, uh, extraction of natural resources and things like that are very much a part of an accelerating process that I don't feel like we quite see how urgent it is. Um, and, and so you sort of look at that and you look at the, the result or the impact of the financial crisis. I mean, what was it, five million Americans were put out of their homes? Five million, something like that? That's a refugee crisis. Right? Where was the UNHCR? I mean, it's just amazing that things of this magnitude are happening in this country and we do seem to be a little bit asleep. So I don't have a crystal ball, but I certainly think there are, there is the reason, there is the stuff of a pretty dramatic backlash against um, where our country is. I don't see it at the moment, but sometimes, I mean, I think if you had been, in, as a matter of fact, the US ambassador to Egypt in January of 2011 said, could never happen here. Tuni Egypt is not Tunisia. Ben Mubarak is not Ben Ali. It could never happen here. So you never know. Oh, balcony. Yeah, great. Sorry about that. How's it going? I'm Trevor. Um, as a young journalist, I'm very inspired by your travels and your expertise on the Middle East and especially your influence on the Middle East, but I'm wondering, as we talk about right and wrong, uh, about the morals of that situation and whether 
I mean, you talked about your, 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 your uh, cells kind of transforming into Afghan cells. And as someone who's assimilated into other countries' cultures, I can relate to that. But at the same time, as someone who's also American, I wonder about the morals of going in somewhere and exerting that influence and having, of course, you know, a very strong expertise. But then is that an undue influence that you have or the, the United States has? And have you ever yourself felt, I'm going to say this word, colonial? Or have you ever felt that the U.S. is colonial in a, in a way? I, I'm going to answer that. It's a great question, and I'm going to answer it in a very provocative way and say that um, from my perspective, which I tried to make as grassroots as possible, um, so I'm living in downtown Kandahar with ordinary people and no barbed wire and no sandbags and speaking Pashto, my experience was that Afghans wanted us to be less respectful of the sovereignty of the government, not more. Um, they were like, what sovereignty? <laughs> you got, you know, what sovereignty? This president wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. So now that you brought him back, bring him to heel. Um, I don't think I was influential. If I were, had been influential, I wouldn't have needed to write the book. I, I wrote the book because I failed miserably to persuade the U.S. government that focusing on um, governance was the quickest route to security and that focusing on, quote, security first was not going to get you there if you didn't address the way the government was treating its own people. I think the real answer to that is to try as much as possible to interact with ordinary people and listen to them and try to be honest, try to be faithful to what you're hearing from them. And I think the issue that I saw and that I describe a lot in, in Thieves of State is that US officials tend to interact with their counterparts and their counterparts in a lot of these countries are members of a criminal organization. And US officials have not figured out how to interact with ordinary people without intermediaries. Now, what you'll also see in the book is that I am just as critical of myself as I am of the US government. I made a lot of the same mistakes, and sometimes I made the same mistakes as I was criticizing US officials for doing something. I was doing the same thing at my, at my own level. Um, but it's a great question, and it certainly is one that needs to be borne in mind. Well, the gentleman, just one second, that uh, the, you really raised a, a great point. And uh, in the book, In Thieves of State, uh, you talk about how you had these, this great support all the way up the chain of command until it got to the National Security Council, and then uh, the, the sort of pragmatism of uh, state leadership, of governmental leadership, said, no, we can't do those things that might really call uh, these corrupt officials what they really are. Uh, I remember uh, when, during, in, in the 60s, uh, Bobby Kennedy went to South Africa, and at the time we were supporting the apartheid regime in South Africa because they were anti-communist. And he gave a speech at Stellenbosch University, and it's worth looking up on the internet, and he said, yes, being anti-communist is important, but we have to stand for something, too, as a nation. Okay, this will be the last question. Thank you very much for the history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> In our political season right now, uh, 
those of us that have watched the debates and uh, a lot of it seems to come down to follow the money and the debates we're having uh, politically about Wall Street. And that brings me to the Pentagon and the percentage of our national budget that goes for the military. And how does this square, if you care to comment about the news today, that we're going to stay in Afghanistan up through 2016 and even into 17 and not reduce the number of troops, but at the same time not increasing them, and really to train the Afghan army. And your thoughts on that, please. So there's a lot in that question because one of them, you know, you started out talking about the Pentagon and the military budget, and you can go back to the John Locke quote, right? A man or a party of men. Well, military industrial, pharma, oil, Wall Street, those are four, and I'm sure we can think of one or two more, parties of men and women that I just wonder whether um, their influence over the way our government is functioning is more or less than what it ought to be. I mean, to what extent is how our government functions determined by the desires or the um, objectives of those four parties of men and women? Uh, I, I think it's, I personally think it is a problem. Um, and if we don't figure out how to address it, um, I'm not, I mean, a guy called Larry Lessig wrote a book called Republic Lost, which is uh, after the apocryphal, perhaps, Ben Franklin statement, what were you doing in that Constitutional Convention all these weeks? Creating a, public, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Um, again, can we keep this thing that, that, that we built this uh, recourse on Earth? On the troops in Afghanistan in particular, I think you will have guessed, based on what I've said so far, um, I think it's essentially a decision that's hollow of meaning for the following reason. Quite obviously, an exclusive focus on the c capabilities of the armed forces in Afghanistan or Iraq or any of these places is beside the point. It's not what it's about. I mean, we put as we put a gigantic amount, we Americans put a gigantic amount of effort, money, talent, uh, uh, and other good things into the military of Iraq. And essentially the second gunfire was in the air, it collapsed, right, last year. Um, it doesn't matter if we keep more troops in Afghanistan. It's irrelevant to the problem set. Kunduz fell, right? We, we had the 5,000, more than 5,000 troops there now, and Kunduz fell. Now, I don't think it would make any difference if we took it down to zero either. It wouldn't save us really any money to take 5,000 troops out of Afghanistan. That doesn't really cost a lot more than it would cost to have them training in their bases around the United States. And this is going to sound really callous, but it's pretty good training for young men and women in the military to actually be in theater. So as a training exercise, I don't particularly mind having 5,000 folks in Afghanistan as opposed to in Fort Campbell. Um, 
However, I think it's irrelevant to the problem set. The problem has to do with the governor of Kunduz. And when I was looking through my notes when Kunduz fell from 2009, the head of, German intel of the German intelligence, I mean, sorry, the head of intelligence for the German unit, which was in control of the Afghan North for NATO, pulled us aside and said, this governor is a disaster. He's stealing land. Um, and I told you about the fruit trees and the, you know, irrigation. And I mean, land means a lot to, means a lot to anyone, but to Afghans, your land is land that your grandfather planted the fruit trees on and that you intend to bequeath to your children and they to their children. Land is worth more than your own life. And the governor is stealing land. That's why Kunduz fell to the Taliban. It has nothing to do with the capabilities of the Afghan army. Ladies and gentlemen, let's say thank you to Sarah.